1: This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. You know, there are some people who go through life virtually unnoticed. They're born onto this earth, they live a quiet and unassuming life, and then, in the end, they just seem to vanish as if they had never, ever existed. One such man was a guy named James Kidd was born to Ellen and William Kidd in Ogdensburg, New York, on August 18th of 1878. Now, to be honest, there's very little known about James Kidd, and what is known was not pieced together until after he had passed away. The 1940 U.S. Census shows that he had a fourth-grade education, worked as a pump man in the copper mining industry, and he earned $1,754 that year, That'd be about $31,800 today. Yet, even with that income, he lived the life of a pauper. Jim was known to have slept on park benches, he went hungry at times, and he even traveled across the country by sneaking aboard freight trains. He would chew the same piece of gum over and over again, storing it in a small tin aspirin box that he carried in his pocket at all times. In 1967, minor Mike Peasley recalled, quote, I knew him when I was a high school boy. I used to walk past the shack on my way to the swimming hole. I always called him Captain Kid. I liked him. You know how kids are always hungry? Well, he would give me peanut butter and jam sandwiches. I think that's what he ate mostly too. He did for himself always. He called himself an old bachelor. He read a lot, he was quiet, was sort of jolly, and he liked to talk to kids. He never wore a necktie, always had his shirt buttoned up at the throat. And I remember his hat. Most people put a crease in their hats, but he didn't. He just wore it standing straight up. Well, it turns out that few ever saw Jim without that old gray fedora upon his head. On the rare occasion when he did remove it, a balding scalp surrounded by graying hair was revealed. Apparently he never married, he had no known relatives or close friends, and he basically kept to himself. He never obtained a driver's license, he had no known military record. Now it was said that he loved to gamble, but he entered each game knowing exactly how much he was prepared to lose. He budgeted himself. Beginning in September of 1920, James Kidd was employed by the Miami Copper Company, not in Florida, but in Miami, Arizona. His job was to keep the wastewater pumps running smoothly. Well, in November of 1941, a rubber bell flew off one of the pumps, and Kidd struggled to shut off a critical valve so that the entire building wouldn't become flooded. Now, he was able to get that stubborn valve closed, but in doing so, the wrench slipped and he was thrust toward the pump. He was luckily stopped from near certain death by an 8-inch or 20-centimeter diameter pipe, but it caused significant bruising to his chest. Some days later, when Kidd was back on the job, he suddenly fell and lost consciousness. It was later, during a workman's compensation hearing that the only record of his actual words was made. Quote, I could feel it then. I had no strength or mental condition. I don't know which. He continued. It seemed impossible to try to do something for myself. I don't remember where my hands were, but there is a four-inch waterline that sticks above the ground, and my shoes are longer than my toes and may have doubled up against me. I never looked to see but I do know I was in that position and couldn't do anything for myself. I had no control over my legs. I couldn't do a thing. When I became more conscious, I realized if I could get on my side, it might do me good. I don't know how I got there or which side I forget. And then, after a certain time, which I don't know for sure, I regained more consciousness and in time, I can't remember the time, I felt able to get up again. Since doctors had diagnosed Jim as having suffered a heart attack, coupled with the fact he had never filed a report after being whacked in the chest by that pipe, his claim was rejected. Now the company offered him a job as a watchman, but he opted instead to retire and move to Phoenix. It was there that Jim was able to rent a small apartment at 335 North Ninth Avenue for $4 per week. That'd be about $43 per week today. Claiming that he lacked the funds to pay the rent, his landlord allowed him to do small jobs to help offset the cost. It was on the evening of November 8th, 1949, that Jim borrowed a pickaxe from an acquaintance and indicated that he'd be headed toward a couple of claims that he made in the Globe-Miami area, which lies some 80 miles or 130 kilometers to the east. So at 6 o'clock the next morning, that's November 9th, a car pulled up outside, Jim locked the door to his room, got into the car, and drove off. James Kidd was never to be seen again. And to this day, no one knows who picked him up or where he was dropped off. Clearly, having always been a bit of a loner, it should come as no surprise that no one noticed for quite some time that Kid had never returned. It wouldn't be until December 29th that his landlord would inform Phoenix police that he was missing. A search of his apartment by officers revealed nothing unusual. Basically, everything seems as it should have been, as if he had intended to return within a short period of time. Now, the search did uncover one interesting fact. That is that James Kidd was not as poor as he had let others believe. A checkbook showed that he had over $3,800. That would be about $40,000 today adjusted for inflation. He had over $3,800 sitting in an account at the Valley National Bank. In addition... He had received a dividend check for $382.50 a few weeks prior to his disappearance. A man named Pete Oviedo later recalled that Jim had told him, I would never make any money working. It would have to be through stocks or prospecting. Well, apparently James Kidd was true to his word and he dabbled in both. But with no known relatives, there was no pressure to locate his body or disperse of his estate. As a result, the investigation into his death was brought to a close in 1954, and James Kidd was officially declared dead. His body was never found. Now that would seem to be the end of the story, but everything changed in 1956. That's when Arizona passed the Uniform Disposition of Unclaimed Property Act, it required that all property that had been unclaimed for seven years needed to be turned over to the state of Arizona within 90 days. Suddenly, a deluge of unclaimed estates landed on the desk of Geraldine C. Swift, who was Arizona's estate tax commissioner at the time. And of course, that included the estate of James Kidd. Initially, Mrs. Swift's office did little other than to document Kidd's estate. The situation changed in 1957 when a safe deposit box that had been rented by him showed up in her office. You know, the box contained you know, things like a few faded photographs, a transcript from his workman's comp hearing, and three stock sell orders. But most importantly, there was a bulky envelope on which the words Buying slips from E.F. Hutton Company, Keep, was written. It suddenly became clear that James Kidd had thousands of shares of stock, some of which were still issuing dividends. In other words, James Kidd was far from a retired pump man. He was very well off. You know, surely James Kidd had to have had some relatives, you know, no matter how distant, and Mrs. Swift set out to locate them. She ran inquiries with the Post Office, the Social Security Administration, the U.S. Census Bureau. She even hired a private investigation firm to assist in the search. No heir was ever located. Meanwhile, his estate just continued to grow. Mrs. Swift later stated, quote, In February 1963, the state examiners were in my office making their yearly check, and they said, You've had this estate for five years. Why don't you dispose of it? She added, Well, that seems sensible to me, but I thought I'd go through everything in the deposit box one more time. On the day that Mrs. Swift's team opted to enter the vault of the First National Bank at First Street and Washington Avenues in Phoenix, work crews had turned the power off to the building. So armed with flashlights, they began to inventory everything in Kid's box. Then it occurred to her that no one had ever bothered to look through all of those buying slips in that bulky envelope. As she began to look through the slips, a small piece of paper fell out of the stack. It was a piece of lined notebook paper marked page 498, and it had been torn out of a ledger. She stated, quote, And then, tucked away in an envelope with rolled up broker's receipts, I found it. That will. I had mixed emotions. For a minute, I could have eaten it. Yeah, that's right. She had found what may have been James Kidd's will. And I say may on purpose. It read, quote, This is my first and only will and is dated the 2nd of January, 1946. I have no heirs and have not been married in my life. And after all my funeral expenses have been paid and $100 to some preacher of the gospel to say farewell at my grave, sell all my property which is all in cash and stocks with E.F. Hutton Company, Phoenix, some in safety deposit box. And here's where it gets really interesting. And have this balance money go in a research or some scientific proof of a soul of the human body which leaves a death. I think in time there can be a photograph of soul leaving the human at death. James Kidd. Reflecting on this discovery several years later, Mrs. Swift commented, quote, My first reaction was I just couldn't believe it was real. It must be a joke. And then I thought I'd better look at it again. I looked and I thought, well, it's dated January 2nd, 1946, and it was signed in his handwriting. We had a signature card for his bank account at the Valley National Bank. It was actually in his safe deposit box. I knew his signature so well. It was exactly the same on both documents. I recognized his handwriting, and after reading it three times and holding this tiny little thing in my hand, I thought... Now here it is. What am I going to do with it? But of course, I knew. I knew naturally that I was going to keep it. You know, if it had been a normal will, and to think it had been there all this time. But to read this in this dark room by flashlight, I mean, everything, the way it was, it was a very eerie feeling. I just sat there and thought that I just had to be dreaming. It was quite a feeling, really. It rocked me it rocked me. To think it had been in my possession all these years. Then, of course, I was very happy to think that here's a man who writes a will, and I'm so happy that I found it, and I'll see that his wish is carried out. You know, you have the funny feeling in the beginning, the very eerie feeling, but then you have your true feeling. I'm the administrator of this law, and naturally I want to put it into the proper hands. So Mrs. Swift turned to the Attorney General's office for help in trying to figure out how to best execute this will. While some of the staff was of the opinion that the will was invalid and therefore should be either ignored or destroyed, Mrs. Swift insisted that the document should be executed just as James Kidd wished. Unable to agree on how to proceed, a petition was made to the Arizona Superior Court to rule on the validity of the will. Judge Robert L. Myers was appointed to handle the case, and initially the question he needed to rule on was fairly straightforward. Was this a valid will, and if so, how should the money, which was now valued at $174,065.69, that'd be over $1.4 million a day, how should the money be distributed? As you can probably guess, it wasn't long before the press picked up on the story of a missing man who had left a fortune to be used in the search for the human soul. Well, the Phoenix Gazette was the first to report on the story, but soon the story had hit newspapers all over the world. Initially, there were just two challenges to the will. On March 5, 1964, the University of Life Church in Phoenix filed a petition with the court claiming that they as a religious organization, were best suited to do the scientific soul-searching. This was followed by a group that claimed to be relatives of James Kidd, and they sought to have the will invalidated. Of course, in that case, the funds would be distributed to them. But it wasn't long before others challenged the will. That included the Barrow Neurological Institute, the University of Arizona College of Medicine, and the Psychical Research Foundation out of Durham, North Carolina. Judge Myers told the press, quote, I know of no precedence for the case nationally. He continued, Mr. Kidd assumes in his will that man does have a soul. This court is concerned only with the legal problems of the will, whether anyone can prove the soul scientifically to the court or will research the existence of the soul. As the case began to drag on, Judge Myers ruled that kid's will was legit and he set formal hearings for March 6 of 1967. The court was suddenly buried in a deluge of mail from all over the world. Unable to answer each letter individually, a form letter was prepared that advised each claimant that they had the right to counsel and, after paying a $15 or $115 today, after paying a $15 filing fee, they'd be able to present their case at the hearings. While there certainly were legitimate claimants, the most unusual ones are far more interesting. So here's a small sampling of some of the correspondence that the court received. A man from Detroit wrote, I believe I'm the only logical existing person to fulfill the requirements asked for by Mr. Kidd. I only need about $36,000 to $50,000 of the money to develop an extra perception machine through which Mr. Kid's soul may send a message to Earth. A woman from Long Beach, California wrote, quote, I have been testing and refining my formula of axiomatic acid-proof revelation against all comers for the last 25 years but whether I am interested in Mr. Kidd's prize will depend largely upon the rules of judging. Now, this idea that this was some sort of contest appeared to be a common thread among the letters. Quote, Dear Sir, I wrote you yesterday seeking information as to where I could send in my answer to the Kid Mystery Contest, and I forgot to put a stamp on the return envelope. Here it is again, and thanks. Another said, quote, Your Honor, I'd like to try for the great prize offered for the person that can prove that life is eternal. A man from Brazil wrote, quote, The human being has two souls, a white soul and a black soul, a negative and a positive one. Which one do you want me to prove the existence of? One woman was quite blunt in what she wanted. Quote, I wouldn't be human if I did not wish for some of Mr. Kidd's loot to buy me a new set of teeth. As the case began to take on a bit of a circus atmosphere, Judge Myers did what he needed to do. He stayed focused on his role. Quote, It is the job of a probate judge to carry out the wishes of a testator insofar as he can. He added, If anyone can fulfill James Kidd's stipulations, my job is to see that is done. After several delays, Judge Myers opened the case on June 6, 1967, with the following statement. Probate cause number 58416 in the matter of the estate of James Kidd. This is the time set for the hearing on the petition of claimant number 9, the American Society for Psychical Research. His honor had set aside 18 days for all to present their claims. When the lawyer for the society informed the judge that he anticipated that their presentation alone would take two days, it was clear that this was going to take far more time than the judge had anticipated. John G. Fuller, in his 1969 book The Great Soul Trial, offers nearly 200 pages of blow-by-blow testimony by some of the bigger players in the case. Yet, once again, it's the quirkier ones that grab the headlines in the newspapers. So here are a couple of my favorites. Mrs. Jean Bright, a mother of five from Encino, California, claimed that she was in contact with the soul of San Fernando dentist Dr. Earl S. Marshall. He had passed away on April 25, 1965. Then, six weeks later, she made her first contact with him during a muscular spasm. To prove that she was in contact with him while giving her testimony, she wore earplugs, and I love this, she placed a portable noisy hairdryer over her head so she'd be unable to hear the questions being asked. And so that she wouldn't be able to read lips, the questioner stood behind her. By nodding or shaking her head, she was able to answer 15 of the 18 questions correctly. And then there's 57-year-old Nora Higgins of Branscombe, California. She told the court that she had seen the spirit of James Kidd about a week prior to the hearing. She described how it happened, quote, I had just finished my housework and walked into my bedroom when I saw a man standing there. I said, good morning, who are you? Apparently he just stood there and smiled back at her. Well, she continued, quote, I was suddenly impressed that this was James Kidd. But in about a half a minute, he disappeared into a white fluorescent light and went up through the ceiling. During her testimony, Mrs. Higgins stated that Kidd was in the courtroom, quote, pacing up and down with his hands behind his back, shaking his head at the proceedings. She also claimed that most of the time he was seated at a table directly in front of Judge Myers, although she was the only person who could see him. Chicago resident Fred B. Nordstrom sought advice from those who knew the most about the heavens, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, in Houston, Texas. They politely wrote back, quote, "...we regret commitments to the Apollo project do not leave sufficient time to give the necessary depth evaluation. We must leave pedagogical research to others." In the end, 133 soul-searchers from all walks of life offered up an estimated 800,000 words of testimony. The hearing took 13 weeks and cost the residents of Maricopa County an estimated $10,000. That'd be over $75,000 today. On October 20th, 1967, Judge Myers handed down his decision. Quote, Considering the language of the last will and testament of the deceased as a whole, it was the intention and desire of the deceased that the residue and remainder of his estate be used for the purpose of research which may lead to some scientific proof of a soul of the individual human which leaves the body at death. It is incumbent on the court to ensure that the residue and remainder of the estate of the deceased be used in such a manner as to benefit mankind as a whole to the greatest degree possible. He continued, This can best be accomplished by the distribution of said funds for the purpose of research, which may lead to some scientific proof of a soul of the individual human, which leaves the body at death. Such research can be best be done in the combined fields of medical science, psychiatry, and psychology, and can best be performed and carried on by the Barrow Neurological Institute, Phoenix, Arizona. Of course, with 132 disappointed petitioners, it was clear that this decision was going to be appealed. And while the Arizona Court of Appeals agreed with Judge Meyer's decision, the Arizona Supreme Court ruled on January 19, 1971, that the Barrow Neurological Institute should not get the funds. Instead, they sent the case back to Judge Myers and directed him to choose from one of four claimants. Finally, on July 17, 1971, Myers awarded Kidd's estate to the American Society for Psychical Research in New York City. In the 21 years, 8 months, and 8 days since James Kidd had disappeared, his estate had grown in value to $297,000. That'd be about $1.86 million today. So I guess the big question is, how was the money spent? Well, lawyers claimed about one-third of the estate in fees, and the society turned over an additional $65,000 to a researcher in North Carolina who never discovered anything worth publishing. As for the society itself they spent the majority of the money on a study of deathbed experiences in both the United States and India. Approximately 1,000 phone calls were made and nearly 5,000 questionnaires were mailed to doctors and nurses in both countries. In papers filed with Judge Myers in June 1975, the Society reported that they had been unable to prove the existence of the human soul. Lorne Knipe, an executive with the Society told the New York Daily News on September 8th, 1985, quote, we're still working on an answer. She added, one day we'll know, one way or the other. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. If you love spaghetti like I love spaghetti I know what you're looking for So come on, get ready The raise Spaghetti
0: I no, 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 no taste buds ready for great spaghetti and the spaghetti store. Here's a riddle for you. What has six different kinds of spaghetti? Chicken, mushroom, meat sauce, shrimp, meatballs, or a combination of any of the above. Oh, that's easy. And dinner prices from $2.10 to two eighty five. dollars 85 Still easy. And additional selections from raviola to steak. That's not a riddle, that's a cross-examination. Come so, well, on, what's the answer? The spaghetti store. Now here's one for you. What has blue eyes and a craving for spaghetti? Paul Newman's stomach. No, me, meatballs. So when you come and bring your appetite. This one not West Highway, also Arlington and Fort Worth.
1: That commercial for the spaghetti store is from the June 20th, 1974 broadcast of the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. This particular episode was titled "The Secret Doctrine." The Spaghetti Store was a concept restaurant launched by the Dobbs House restaurant chain back in 1971. In addition to the three Texas locations mentioned in the ad, they also operated restaurants in places like Shreveport, Louisiana and Louisville, Kentucky. The chain, as its name implied, specialized in, you're ready for this, they specialized in spaghetti. I know you're shocked by that. Anyway. In reality, each location offered a full Italian menu that included burgers, sandwiches, salads, and New York strip steaks. Each location also had a small bar that served up soft drinks, beer, wine, and of course, mixed drinks to their patrons. At its peak, the chain operated a total of 15 stores, but the concept really never caught on. By 1978, all of the spaghetti store's locations had shut down due to a lack of business. So the other day, for the umpteenth time, I was browsing through a trivia book and it mentioned that Robert Earl Hughes, who was the heaviest man on earth at the time of his death in 1958, Hughes was so large that he had to be buried in a piano shipping box. So that got me thinking as to whether or not this often cited piece of trivia was true or not. Well, it took me less than a minute to find out the answer. So my question for you today is really in two parts. First, was Hughes really buried in a piano shipping box? And second, roughly, and I know you probably don't know the exact answer, roughly how much did he weigh at the time of his death? Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast.
0: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: In other news, here are three stories that all do with the spirit's death and dying. On August 13th of 1906, Syracuse, New York resident Sackville G. Lyson, who just happened to be the president of the Society for Psychical Research, he told of his recent trip to Mars. And although Mars is 140 million miles or 225 million kilometers from Earth, Lysen claimed that his spirit went there and back in 40 minutes while his body lay still. Here is what he said he saw. Quote, When I approached Mars, it looked like a big globe of fire, and it seemed as if it was about to plunge into a molten mass. It was surrounded by blood-red clouds mixed with others of greenish hue. He continued, There are two tribes of people on Mars, one so large I only came up to their knees, and the other so small that they only came up to my knees. None wore clothing. All were covered in hair. The larger of the species had huge ears, a nose like a lion, and only one eye in the middle of the forehead. Their lungs do not move up and down in breathing, but expand crosswise. The little men lived in holes in the ground or rocks. The larger ones had houses made of rocks. The little ones had webbed feet and slipped over a moss-like substance as though skating. They could walk up perpendicular walls like flies. The small ones have two eyes, one in each temple. They had no noses, but there was a hole in each cheek. The trees looked as if made of rubber. I saw none decayed. There was a substance which looked like snow, but which was not cold and was easy and soft to walk on. Down in a deep chasm, I saw men working with some sort of machines which were guiding lights across transparent rocks. The rays seemed to be reflected clear to the atmosphere of earth. Well, clearly it's a good thing that Lyson made this trip when he did. Because now that man is, you know, in fact, planning trips to Mars, we know exactly what to expect. In our next story, it was reported on November 23, 1926, that one of the strangest wills ever was exhibited in the Probate Court in London. John Barnes, who was the pilot of a boat on the Manchester Ship Canal, wrote an ordinary will in 1920 he left a portion of his estate to his second wife, Margaret, and the remainder to the children from his first marriage. Now, had this been Barnes' only will, it probably would have gone uncontested. Yet, shortly after Barnes passed away, his wife made an unusual discovery atop a wardrobe in his bedroom. It was an eggshell, and the following words were written on it, 17-1925, Madge: everything I possess, J.B. Now there was no doubt that the handwriting on the shell was that of the deceased. In addition, he commonly referred to his wife Margaret as Madge. The real question was whether or not he intended this unusual document to supersede that formally drawn-up last will and testament that was prepared in 1920. It was a case that Lord Merivale, who presided over the case, took quite seriously. It was established in court that Barnes was in the habit of carrying eggs with him in a small pouch in a bag. Yet Merivale ruled against Mrs. Barnes. First, while Barnes was, quote, a seaman at sea, he was able to spend a portion of his time ashore and was not a soldier engaged in actual military service he felt that this was essential for the validity of the will. In addition, the words Madge, everything I possess, were insufficient to prove that John Barnes wanted all of his possessions to go to his wife. And in our last story for today, when Walter C. Weiland died on September 3, 1954, at the age of 42, the will that he had written way back in 1936 left nothing to Mrs. Doris M. Rubel. She just happened to be his fiancée at the time of his passing. A widow, she lived right across the street from Mr. Wyland at 965 South Catalina Street in Los Angeles, California. Well, one day she's about to discard a 1953 calendar that had been hanging on the wall of Mr. Wyland's home at 962 South Catalina. Suddenly, she noticed some writing on it. Penciled on the back of the calendar was Mr. Wyland's will, which he had penned two days prior to his death. In it, he left all of the money that he had saved to Mrs. Rubel. The only catch was that it was not all in one account. Instead, he had opened one hundred and two bank accounts all over the world. That included such faraway places as Honolulu and Manila in the Philippines. Now, none of these accounts were overflowing with money. For example, the Hawaiian account had $1.57 in it. Another in Salt Lake City contained $8.45, while one in Glens Falls, New York held $2.67. In total, the 102 accounts added up to less than $400, That'd be approximately $3,775 today. Strangely, he had never been to many of these places and opened most of the accounts by mail. Now, the good news was that while Mr. Wiley didn't save much, he had set up a number of life insurance policies. His newly penned will, which was viewed by the courts as a codicil or addendum to his previous will, you know, coupled with all that insurance money, provided Mrs. Rubel with $20,000. That's nearly $190,000 today. On top of that, he also named her 18-year-old son, Maurice Rubel, as beneficiary to policies that yielded another $9,500. That's nearly $90,000 today. Interestingly, his original will left just $1 each to his father, mother, four sisters, and two brothers. The will that he wrote on the calendar confirmed these same exact meager amounts, but it really wasn't as bad as it sounds. Again, additional insurance policies bequeathed to them an additional $30,000, or $283,000 today. So a few minutes ago I'd asked you about Robert Earl Hughes, who was the heaviest man on earth at the time of his death on July 10th of 1958. Now, the press described Hughes as having been a normal-sized baby at the time of his birth on June 4, 1926, in Monticello, Illinois. Now, personally, I may be wrong on this, I consider an 11 pounds or 5.1-kilogram baby to be a very large baby. Now, the story goes that everything was fine until he suffered an attack of the whooping cough at three months of age. After that his weight just began to skyrocket. By age 6, Hughes weighed 203 pounds or 92 kilograms. At 10, he was 378 pounds or 171 kilograms. At 13, he weighed 546 pounds or 248 kilograms. And at age 25, he weighed in at 896 pounds or or 406 kilograms. In 1953, he signed on with the Gooding Brothers Amusement Company as a sideshow attraction. He was billed as the world's heaviest man. He was still traveling with Gooding in July of 1958 when he fell ill at the Mermaid Festival in North Webster, Indiana. He was diagnosed with a case of the measles and rushed to nearby Elkhart General Hospital. But due to his large size, they were unable to care for him, and they sent him to an osteopathic hospital in South Bend. But they also could not treat him. So finally, Hughes arrived at the Bremen Community Hospital, and they agreed to care for him. Now, the biggest problem was that Hughes was so large that none of the hospitals had a gurney strong enough to carry his weight. In addition, it was clear that he could not pass through the doors into any of their hospital rooms, nor did they have a bed big enough to hold him. Instead, a makeshift hospital room was set up inside of Hughes' home, which was built atop a tractor-trailer bed and parked in the hospital's parking lot. It was determined that in addition to the measles, Hughes was suffering from congestion and a heart condition. Initially, he seemed to respond well to treatment, but sadly he passed away on Thursday, July 10th of 1958. He was just 32 years old. The cause of death was given as uremia. The American Medical Association confirmed that he was the heaviest man at the time of his death. He weighed... Did you guess right? Did you even get close? He weighed 1,041 pounds or 472 kilograms. He also had a 122 inch or 3.09 meter waist. And his arms, they measured 40 inches or 1.02 meters around at the thickest part. After being embalmed in his trailer home, he was transported to the Brown Funeral Home in Mount Sterling, Illinois. His brother Guy told the press, I asked Browns to arrange for building a special casket. So he was not buried, as widely reported, in a piano shipping box. The casket was constructed in Burlington, Iowa, and measured 52 inches or 132 centimeters wide by 34 inches or 86 centimeters deep and of course was of normal length. More than 1,500 people attended his funeral, which was held on July 12, 1958 in a tent at Benville Cemetery in Benville, Illinois. There were no pallbearers, and a mechanical hoist was needed to lower the specially built coffin into the ground. His tombstone is engraved with the words, World's heaviest man, weight 1,041 pounds. Well, that's a record that he no longer holds. Ten men and one woman have since weighed more. The heaviest man was John Brower Minnick, who weighed in at 1,400 pounds or 635 kilograms. He passed away on September 10, 1983 at 41 years of age. The heaviest woman was Carol Yeager, who weighed 1,200 pounds or 544 kilograms. She passed away on July 18, 1994. She was just 34 years of age. If anything, one thing is perfectly clear. Carrying that much weight translates into a shorter life. Of the 1000 plus people listed on Wikipedia, The oldest lived to 63 years of age. But the vast majority of those on the list who passed away, they died in their 30s or 40s. That's very sad. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. Just a reminder that I'm writing a new book that will be titled The Flip Side of History. Now, I did get some good news the other day. There's nothing definite, but it looks like BJ's Wholesale Club is going to be stocking the book. They even provided input on the new cover design, and I have to say I'm much happier with this design than the last one. If you'd like to receive additional updates as to when the book will be available, you can just go to my website at uselessinformation.org and click on the image of the book on the left. That'll take you to a Google form where you can enter your contact information. If you'd like to contact me for any reason, you can do so on the website or just email me at steve at uselessinformation.org. Be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed, it's at uselessinfocast, that's at Infocast, and you'll be among the first to know when a new episode is released. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook, you can just do a quick search for the Useless Information podcast there and it should pop up. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify TuneIn, I think it's on Pandora, basically wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Anyway, I hope you have a nice Thanksgiving and that you'll tune in the next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests
0: from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes.